everybody. It is Jean Nathan. It is Crosstown Conversations. And as um, you were just hearing in some of the spots on the air, we are faced with a very important election. And I know there's a lot of disillusionment out there. There's a lot of disgust with the way things are going. Uh, and let's just, let's just call it the partisan divide, although there's a much worse kinds of things going on as well. But um, we have a race for governor here, and uh, you have one candidate endorsed by um, Mr. Trump, and you have one that has uh, been in office and is changing things around. And I um, think it's important for you all to pay attention to the situation and be sure and not just get yourself out to vote, but your friends, your family, your associates, um, your whole list of people that you send all those cute pet pictures to. Um, to help us understand this, I've got two very knowledgeable people on the show tonight. And the first one is a guy named Silas Lee. I'm sure a lot of you have heard of him, have heard him speak. Um, but he has been polling folks in this state for <clears throat> a few decades. Right, Silas? Yes. <laughs> yes, state and nationwide. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so um, I, I know that you know a thing or two, as they say, and I'm going to um, ask you to share with us a perspective on the race that we have right now in Louisiana, in particular the governor's race. This is the one I um, want everybody to train their attention to. So give me a feel for what you think is happening because it sure is close. Well, yes, it is close, and at the same time, it's an issue of motivation as well as, more importantly, making people um, aware and energized about the significance of this election. Certainly, elections have consequences, and the consequences naturally relate to the fact that progress is always temporary. So it's a question of do we want the state to move forward and be inclusive, and really be a 21st century state, or do we want the state to go back to the past and be exclusionary and start to experience some of the problems that handicapped it from the, um, in, the, in the previous eight years? So those are some challenges. I think people have to, and candidates, not just voters, but candidates have to be more strategic in communicating the impact of this election on the lives of people directly. You know, uh, I have to tell you that um, I, I, you probably don't get an opportunity to listen to my show that much, but one of the themes that I repeat a lot is um, uh, my question that I just haven't figured out how to answer, and I'm curious to hear your perspective on it, is how do you reach people who seem willing to accept endless levels of I would use the word infamy. I'm sorry, I probably shouldn't be as outspoken about it, but it's really hard under the circumstances to overlook the number of egregious strategies that um, we see in play in Washington, not just on the part of the president, but on the part of a, a lot of people who for some reason think that he holds their political future in his hands. Um, which is just something shocking. All those folks who, who've been up there and out there for so long and have a clue of how things work to think that, that their fate is determined by a guy who cares about 
no other fate other than his own is just beyond me. But I am also cognizant of the fact that there are a lot of people out there hurting. They've lost jobs. They've lost careers. They've lost their futures. They've lost the ability to put their kids through school. And I'm extremely empathetic with them. But I'm, I'm empathetic to the point that I feel really, really sorry that they are so duped by the effectiveness, I guess I have to say, of the rhetoric coming from him and his supporters. So please, please explain to me, how, when you look at the issue of how do we communicate with folks, how do we help them understand the extent to which they're being taken for, for a ride? Um, bamboozled is the word I often think of. Well, not everyone will be receptive to open and honest communication. And what we have to realize is that every, uh, people have different lens that they view elected officials and policies through. And unfortunately for some people, they will never be able to see the duplicity and the, and the, uh, and the fact that the president and some of his supporters uh, do not have their best interests in mind. So the best thing that we can do is continue to inform and make people enlightened to the fact of what is truly happening among those who feel disenfranchised. Uh, because you have certain people who are just strict ideologues, and regardless of what you say, they look at it through a different lens, or they try to filter what they want to see and hear and ignore the reality of the implications from the policies. So that's something that a lot of people haven't reconciled themselves to, that what we see as wrong to others, they do not see it, nor will they have the maturity to acknowledge it. All right. So um, what you're saying is basically there are some voters who there's really no point in trying to reach them. For those that you think are reachable, what is the best way? Because I don't feel like we've 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 um, really uh, reached that understanding of the best way to communicate with folks and who maybe are a, kind of addicted in a certain way to the message of of this person, but um, and and his and some of his followers. Uh, but for those who who um, you know, just they want to change. They wanted somebody who was going to break up what seemed to them like years of um, no real improvement. And, and to that extent, I, I often say I, I kind of blame the Democrats just as much as the Republicans. I don't think we've done enough to deal with the economic circumstances of the country and gotten and, and not get sidetracked by issues that are really in in. in really in, in some ways really no business of government at all to begin with. So what for those whose minds may have a, a crack open in their minds, what do you suggest is the best way to reach them? What have you seen in your polling um, that, in, that gives you some clue? Well, it's not a one-dimensional process or strategy. It's multifaceted. It is uh, multilayered, and it is complex. Because we live in a very diverse society where people <clears throat> have different perceptions and different experiences. So a uh, one-size-fits-all message 
will never be effective. We have to reach people where they are in terms of their experiences, what their expectations, and also uh, what they would want elected officials to prioritize. So that is why you have to be aware of the fact that this will require more due diligence from candidates and elected officials in reference to motivating and reaching voters. Additionally, is something that is not a once-in-every-four-year process. It is something, and it is a process that is ongoing. You don't start the campaign during the election cycle. You have to work to motivate and inform voters uh, before in an election cycle. Right, way in advance. So um, I, I was still I'm searching for, maybe I, it, it just isn't there in a way, is that magic message. Uh, he sure has figured out some magic messages at work. Um, well, he doesn't have magic messages, but he knows how to manipulate the anxieties and the fears of people. So uh, his message is very erratic, uh, but in terms of people being manipulated by fear, definitely he has been able to mobilize and tap into the frustrations of a core group of supporters uh, who is not about message but more about ideology and some of, uh, of his positions and how he makes them feel. So they will tell you one thing, but it's more in relation to his ability to inflame and arouse the anxieties of people and make them react. How close is this race right now? What is the trending? And uh, and, and uh, Devin, I'm just calling attention to my... Uh, so um, I, I need to understand how exactly how close the race is. And, and uh, besides the obvious vote that we need to get out in New Orleans and around the state, um, what about the younger voters? They're, they're, if we could pull in um, – I'm sure you have some sense of the numbers on this. If we could pull in some of the younger voters, I go after the cultural voters because the cultural voters – they're going to suffer if 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 we um, go in the wrong direction. So, uh, what what are we doing? Or, 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 or am I right in assuming that um, the younger voters are are also a key? And how are we reaching them? But reference to reaching the millennial voters and younger voters, you have to address the specific issues and engage in mobilization efforts. Um, on college campuses and in venues and environments where they are. You have to cultivate a set of peer communicators. It's not just the candidates, but you need some other communicators to mobilize and reach um, voters of diverse constituency groups. That would be by race, age, gender, uh, religion, whatever demographic or profile you want to create. So uh, reaching voters requires due diligence, work, and a lot of creativity. And that's something that I think, unfortunately, uh, some candidates are still learning right now. They are looking for that magic bullet, that magic formula. It is not just one 
formula. It will change. What worked for one or in one uh, cycle is not going to be always effective in another cycle. The political ecology constantly changes. Okay. Do you think there's any kind of a trending in Louisiana for the younger people to get out to vote? Well, in terms of trending, yes, I think it is there. But at the same time, you have to acknowledge the, uh, and we have to realize the fact that uh, younger voters are concerned about quality of life issues, economic issues. They are graduating from college or they're trying to start a career saddle with debt in many cases. So how are you going to create an opportunity escalator for younger voters, uh, create an environment that will appeal to younger voters and their lifestyle, offer them a quality of life that is not only affordable, that has meaning to it, where they can reach their professional and personal goals. So that is where uh, we have to go back to the drawing board and customize messages and strategies to reach not just younger voters, older voters, women, and voters are not monolithic, so we cannot expect to have a monolithic approach to this uh, initiative. I, I, I hear what you're saying. You're really talking about tailoring um, the message very much to, um, to, to reach people. Um, at this point, if you had to call... This election, I know you don't like this question, but if you had to call it, um, just be really being really um, hardcore about it, uh, what do you think? Well, you know, we have to be careful in terms of what we see and what's really happening. Certainly, uh, the potential is there for John Bell to win. Now, it's, it's not going to be like 2015, uh, the fact that he is in a runoff. And when you consider the fact that he uh, did, he received 46% of the vote, I think that, and that also came because of the last-minute commercial uh, about sexual harassment from someone who used to work for him. I think that diminished some support and enthusiasm. So as it stands right now, I, I think it's very close from what I'm picking up. Uh, certainly uh, the the potential is there for him to get reelected. It's a question of momentum, motivation, and mobilization. <laughs> exactly. Um, I sure hope that um, all uh, three of those things are in play, one way or another. But if if you were, um, I, I I don't know whether you're doing any work with um, Edwards or not. But if you were, um, or uh, how you perceive exactly what at this point. With just these days left, um, what would you uh, be emphasizing? What would you be doing to to provide that motivation um, for uh, both the younger and and some of the um, dis disenfranchised voters who might be willing to either change their position or um, just simply get out to vote? Well, try to touch as many voters and reach as many voters as you can. Uh, and this particular point is. It's all about reaching and touching voters, either directly or indirectly. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a coordinated effort whereby it's not just one person doing this, but you will, and he does have to have the support of diverse constituency groups and organizations to help. And that's what, uh, again, it's not 
just a candidate, but having that infrastructure to engage in voter outreach and mobilization and have it done on a consistent basis. I, I pointed out in my newsletter that there was a legislative race in the state in the first where there was a 16-vote spread that decided the election. Right. Um, I mean, that's that's got to be motivation for some people who are concerned. I, and I also heard that on the first day of voting, early voting here, we had a high turnout. Is that prevailing? I haven't checked in the past couple of days to see if, if that, that high turnout is continuing. Uh, well, uh, tomorrow will probably be a better indicator, so it might be, but certainly we don't need to be, um, I think, overconfident by the trends that we see from the first two days because we still have another week to go, although early voting will end uh, this weekend. On the 9th. So, um, and, and Ken, do you have any uh, um, understanding or notion of what this uh, early voting means in terms of who uh, people, who's coming out to vote for who? I mean, um, uh, obviously I'm sure it's on both sides to some extent, um, but do you have any uh, uh, sharper insight than that on um, uh, who is actually coming out for the early voting? Well, initially we noticed the Democrats and among Democrats and with African Americans, the uh, turnout was very strong in terms of early voting. But again, that is not indicative of what it will uh, reflect at the end, but that is always an encouraging sign. I hope that it it is, and um, it, it it does do exactly what you're saying. Uh, uh, get people to um, be motivated, care about it, get out, and um, I guess we'll just have to see how it turns out. But yeah, um, uh, I'd be curious if if you see any really distinct trend, give me a buzz. I'd love to. Uh, Anything that encourages people that their vote can make a difference, and I think that's the key. If you feel like the votes are really stacked against you, you tend not to vote. I think there's some folks in the state that feel, okay, it's a red state, it's going red, that's all there is to it. Um, that's where the danger lies. But hopefully right. there's enough people who think um, it is close, my vote does count, and as I say, they have to get themselves out, their friends, their associates, their family, and uh, it's that old expression, early and often. Exactly. All right. Silas, okay. thank you so much for checking in. And uh, as I said, let me know if you see anything um, that uh, is, is, is something that we should share with voters to um, help encourage them to come out. Okay. All right. Will do. Thank you. You take care. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Um, so I was expecting Karen uh, Carvin to be on the air and um, to be calling in, and I'm sure she's going to call in any minute. But uh, I think what we're going to do is flip the uh, segments and um, – bring in um, a woman who is part of a, an effort to try to call attention to an issue that actually has not been a part of this race, unfortunately, because I think the position of the candidates is probably a little bit too close on it. But it's an issue that I hope um, uh, will emerge as we go forward. And I'm going to get her hooked up on the mic, and we're going to continue with her and then um, we'll ask Karen when she calls to call back in about 20 minutes. Okay. Hi. Hello. So, um, Joan, and how do you pronounce your last name? Miners. Miners. Um, is not only a reporter, it turns out she's something of a scientist. <laughs> and I'm looking at her, um, I'm looking at the, uh, 
the little um, uh, things that she's plastered on her computer, and I see science, not silence. That's a great expression. I love it. But there sure has been a lot of silence in this race, the governor's race, yeah. about an issue that we are all faced with. And it's one of those issues that, you know, it has a certain uh, – we kind of know it's there, but it's, there's a certain invisibility to it also. And um, if you don't really pay attention, um, uh, it, it just continues. I, I want to read – the first part of, of the story that uh, Joan uh, is one of the key reporters in having put together a, a major piece in the um, Times Picayune Advocate, right. AKA the paper. <laughs> right. I understand the inside. <laughs> it's folks a long are name just now. calling it the paper. <laughs> um, uh, 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 that uh, it uh, comes forward, and, and this is uh, kind of heartbreaking to read, but I think it's really important. So, over a half century, Hazel Schneider saw her riverside hamlet of St. Gabriel transformed from a collection of old plantations, tin roof shacks, and verdant green cornfields into an industrial juggernaut. By the early 1990s, she'd had enough of the towering chemical plants and their mysterious white plumes, the roadside ditches oozing with blue fluid, the air that smelled of rotten eggs and nail polish remover, the neighbors suffering miscarriages and dying of cancer. We were inundated with plants, Sheck Snyder, now 87, said. We didn't need any more around here. She and others began pushing back in 1993, and the following year, residents voted to turn their corner of unincorporated Iverville Parish into the city of St. Gabriel. They wanted sidewalks and other amenities, but more than that, they wanted some say over the chemical plants popping up in their backyards. While the newly created city was able to keep new plants out, the petrochemical pileup continued unabated around and beyond St. Gabriel's borders. I bet you money there are 20 plants right now just around St. Gabriel's, Sheck Snyder said, nearly twice as many as there were when the incorporation drive began. She's not even close. There are now 30 large petrochemical plants within 10 miles of her house, most of them outside the city limits. 13 are within a three-mile radius of her home. The nearest facility, only a mile away, is the world's largest manufacturer of polystyrene, commonly known as styrofoam. Stories of fed-up Louisianas like Sheck Snyder fighting back against corporate polluters have gotten worldwide media attention over the last year as a raft of enormous new petrochemical facilities takes shape along the Mississippi River corridor. Much of the focus has been on the potential hazards posed by specific plants, including the $9.4 billion plastics factory that Formosa plans to build in St. John's Parish and the longstanding Denka, is that pronounced right? Mm-hmm. Neo. So. Preen facility in St. John Parish, whose dangerous emissions were highlighted in an EPA model that estimates cancer risk around chemical plants. Indeed, the stretch of the Mississippi River between New Orleans and Baton Rouge is nicknamed Cancer Alley because of its concentration of petrochemical facilities. These are the words of Joan Meisner. Would you tell me how it affected you to be experiencing this as you're talking with these people. I mean, it had to be emotional. It's emotional for me to read it. Right, yeah. So Tristan um, and I sat with Hazel uh, for hours and hours while she talked about her 
experience growing up uh, from the age of 17 when she came out from New Orleans. She has, she has quite a life story. Uh, she, I think she got in trouble because she got into... She got into motorcycles when she was a teenager, and she, her dad sent her. We didn't put this in the story, but it's fun. Her dad sent her out to the countryside to have a quieter life and with her grandparents, and she lives right across the street from where her grandmother's house was. Uh, she showed us some pictures of that, um, and she just has an amazing life story, and she's seen St. Gabriel in her in the past 70 years when she's lived there, she's seen it just change so much and was telling us about that. And she keeps, uh, you know, we were at her house for these interviews and she keeps newspaper clippings of all the changes and pictures of what the area used to look like. And so it's kind of, you know, a time capsule just being in her house and thinking about what the area used to be like and the reasons why people would have moved there. Uh, and all the ways that it has changed into a place that now she says she wouldn't move. It, it, it was. Um, what, what did national. you conclude from uh, from her experience in terms of her very valiant efforts to change the process? Well, yeah, there were a number of characters in this community that have tried to stand up against the industry and more plants coming into the area over the years um, with with limited success, as as you'll know if you read our story and read other stories. And the the one of the hard things about reporting the story is that St. Gabriel is actually an example of of a community that did wrestle some control over their own fate from the chemical industry and still they are in the midst of one of the worst pockets of air pollution in the nation and so for all these other communities that um, have not been able to incorporate as cities since or have not been able to have their voices heard as as you know members of a community it can be even worse. And a lot of the places where this is happening, uh, the people aren't even really tuned in to what's going on. One of the neat things about St. Gabriel is that the people who live there are very engaged and they, um, you know, they banded together and did this. They made this city incorporation happen so that they would have control of their fate and other places it's remarkable when you look at what the kind of the lack of attention to um, the role that industry plays in people's lives in other communities nearby. Um, I, I, I constantly try to understand um, why Louisiana thinks that uh, the petrochemical industry is the key to its economic future as opposed to so many other things that we can be investing in. And, and you don't know me that well, but I focus on the creative industries because the, those are industries that relate to the talent and the, and the cultural legacy we have here and, um, and our brand and what we're known for and, and what we should be really developing and we're not. And so it's, it's so frustrating to see us invest in something that's basically just eating up our land and, and, and really damaging people's lives instead of improving them. So uh, 
you've studied what 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 is the basis for the commitment to this industry on the part of people in public office um i mean the the narrative that that makes up most of the talking points here of course is about jobs um there have been a number of analyses that have shown that that the jobs aren't always uh, there aren't as many jobs created as as are promised, or they don't always go to locals. Um, but in other places, they they feel they do. So I I did a a companion story to this main one that you have printed here um, that ran on Friday. So this this one ran a week ago Wednesday, and then my uh, sidebar piece ran on Friday, and it was about kind of a contrasting community to the one that we profiled in this main, main bar story, uh, and that was in Ascension Parish, where um, it is one of the wealthiest uh, places in the state and uh, in terms of median household income. And it's different, it has very different demographics from St. Gabriel. Uh, and in that parish, the kind of, dominant attitude is pro-industry and people do feel like they've gotten jobs uh, that have supported a certain lifestyle, but they weren't, when I spoke to a lot of people in that community, they weren't always aware of the fact that their their area ranks top in terms of air toxic air pollution. And so I think there are very different uh, perspectives in different kind of parts of the state about this. But overall, it does seem like there's one quote that really stood out to me that was from Reverend Rene Castine, who's a pastor in Ascension Parish. And he said, people accept industry because they're used to it. And I think that kind of says a lot more than than a lot of analyses could say about why people are okay with this or what they're getting out of this or what kind of it is about our cultural dynamics in the state that allow this to go on. It's a large role could be played by just, you know, that's kind of how it is and that's how it always has been and they're used to it. And that's um, that's actually, uh, in, in my early days in Louisiana, I came here in the early 70s, and um, I was a broadcast reporter, and I would be chasing hurricanes down in South Louisiana. And um, and people would say, you know, they were evacuating. I said, well, how do you feel about that? They said, well, we always do it. We've been doing it. We're going to do it. Right. And, um, and, and places like New Orleans where we're faced with um, what are described as no less than catastrophic future pro- probabilities based on ocean rise – and, and folks are kind of like, okay, well, you know, how, how much do I have to raise my house? And we're not going anywhere. We're staying here. We're, we're going to, you know, this is our home. There's some attachment to place. Oh, of course. That is so fierce. And I, I mean, I didn't grow up here. And I would have to say that that attachment to place and that resilience is one of the things I love about being here, I mean, it's such a personality of this whole area, these people's um, persistence and determination to stay put in despite all of these, you know, challenges and natural disasters and things that are going on. It's a challenging place to live for a variety of reasons, but uh, it's also a wonderful place to live. And um, I, yeah, I think we're getting to the kind of core of, 
of the why this whole dynamic exists. The people are very committed to staying put and staying the course and um, that kind of carries into continuing to do other things, you know, quote unquote, the way they've always been done when that might get into some territory of things that might be better off revisiting and taking a look at, you know, when we've gotten to the point where some of these places are so saturated with plants that um, the air pollution is just off the charts compared to what other states deem acceptable. When you have uh, revealed to someone the level of toxicity here um, and, and they were surprised, then what did they say or think? It really depends. Um, you know, people like Hazel, when we, so so early on, you know, several months ago, we, we've been working on this since January, and several months ago we put together a map of air pollution risk uh, that is part of our online series that's an interactive map. You can actually type in your own zip code and see what things are like right around where you live. Stay right there. Let's not move from that. How do people do that exactly? Because I'm one of those people who it has to be <laughs> spelled out in the ABCs. How do you do it? Yeah, sure. Um, so if you go to our landing page um, for the Polluters Paradise series, either on NOLA.com or The Advocate or ProPublica. We have pages on all of those sites. If you can navigate to the Polluters Paradise series, uh, one of the one of the uh, things you can click on will be an interactive map. And if you scroll to the bottom of that, you'll see a little box where you can type in your zip code and it'll tell you what the what the pollution, air pollution is like in your area, and you can compare it to the really kind of, we have it shaded red, so the darkest red places are the most toxic um, when you're combined, weighting these over 200 different chemicals that are released into the air legally um, with permits uh, in in this area between Baton Rouge and, and New Orleans, um, and then this pollution map that that the team has put together uh, weights those by toxicity and then shows you kind of the density of toxicity in your area. I really, I (laughs) urge people to do that exercise. So let's just repeat that one more time. You go to the either NOLA.com or Mm ProPublica or uh, Advocate, Baton Rouge, uh, rather, um, Advocate, Tom Spicune. Right. And, of course, I would encourage everyone to support local journalism because okay. this would not, you know, even though ProPublica is a national outlet and really made this series possible with funding and, and resources, the knowledge about the local culture and the who to talk to and where to go and how to actually do this and the nuts and bolts of it is really local reporting knowledge that has been going on, you know, long before I was part of this. So it's important to support not your local news source, even when you have gripes about them, or especially when you have gripes about them. Help them out. Um, so go to the NOLA.com uh, Polluters Paradise page. Uh, you'll find all of our articles, and there will be an interactive map that you can scroll to the bottom of that page, type in your zip code. Type in the zip code. Okay. You know, um, two things. First of all, I, I just want to say an anecdote of my own experience when I was reporting and I was down in South Louisiana. I was actually doing a story during an oil 
crisis we had when the prices had shot up and it was hard for people to get enough energy. And So I went visiting people all over South Louisiana who lived without energy. That was the theme of the series. Mm-hmm. And um, I ran into a guy who was out getting crabs out of his traps. And I said, how y'all doing? And he said, hey, lady, because he could see I was a television reporter with a camera with me. And he said, why don't you tell them how much the channels that the energy companies have built are destroying our marshes with salt water? This was 1974, I think it was, in that realm. And um, it just wasn't something that was being talked about at the time at all. This is really pre the green era, Mm -hmm. so-called. Hopefully that's real. And um, I went back and I, I, I continued to follow up and sort of called the EPA and if there was a hearing I would go to it and I mean there was just no attention being paid to this issue at all. And of course as you know we barely are challenging the energy companies today about the repairing of those channels because that's of course another ca- cause of coastal erosion in that case. But you didn't answer my question before. Sure. So I asked you why are the people in public office who by now must know better still addicted to the petrochemical industry for our future? Yeah, well, I'm not a politics reporter, so I'll I'll kind of skirt that a little bit and just say that I think it you know, they are they're trying to represent their base. And here, when you go out as an environment reporter and you talk to people about how they feel about plants, they they say, you know, for the most part, I mean, you have people like Hazel that are outraged and have been fighting against it, you know, most of her life um, with mixed success. But for the most part, people have accepted it as just how Louisiana is. And so... Uh, I think that they are pandering to the votes, and that's where they think the voters are. But <clears throat> you mentioned, <clears throat> excuse me, you mentioned the environmental movement, um, which in some parts of the country started in the '60s, and then in, in Louisiana, we're a little bit behind the curve on that, and it was more the '70s and '80s. Um, yeah, and it was has, really uh, towards the end of the '70s and the, and the early '80s when. We focused on coastal erosion, for one thing. That wasn't an issue before that. Um, so you, you think it's pandering to the votes and not to the dollars? Well, I think it's, it has to be both, right? And people that are pro-industry, they're also included, includes workers in the plants. And, of course, we're all complicit because we all use products that are produced in these plants, everybody in the whole country. And so nobody can say that they're they're totally innocent, but... You know what we were trying to do with this series is point out, kind of take a take a step back and look at the big picture and look at really hot spots of industry and get people to start talking and thinking about whether it's okay that there's so many in certain areas. I'm trying to figure out what I can bring to a restaurant to take <laughs> my leftovers home in instead of the plastic boxes. I have some um, glass the Tupperware. The what? I have some glass Pyrex Tupperware that I. That's that's that I that's sometimes waiting. remember to bring. <laughs> but I, I'm thinking about just um, you can buy these small paper bags mm-hmm. from the bag companies that sell them to retailers. Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking of um, maybe I just need a bunch of those little bags and I can just slip my sandwich in there or whatever. And yeah, because I try. I put everything in glass at home. Yeah. Just so you know. 
Um, we could go on. This is a big issue. I want you to come back. You're going to be doing this series forever. And uh, I, I thank you and your um, partners, uh, Tristan Borick. Is that ba- how you say Barrick, it? yeah. And uh, Lila? Layla. Layla Eunice. Younce. Younce, <laughs> okay. Uh, and this is Joan Miners, who has been um, helping us uh, better understand. I, I really recommend the article, by the way. In Parcel, Louisiana, Cancer Alley, toxic emissions set to rise with a raft of new plants. It isn't just what's there, it's what's coming. Come back and tell us more as, as uh, your story develops. Will okay? do. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for coming in. Um, so we're going to go back to our political discussion right now with Karen Carvin, who's, um, you know, she works with those candidates. So I'm going to ask Karen as we go into this discussion. She wasn't prepared for this question, but I'm going to put it to her. So, Karen, why are our political leaders so immune to this issue that we've been t- – I don't know whether you could – could you hear us just now, conversation? Just, we- I just – hi, Jean. Thanks yeah. for having me on. Yeah, I just did hear the tail end of – um, the interview. So did you see the story that was in the paper? I guess it was just a couple days ago, October 30th, uh, in parts of Louisiana Cancer Alley, tox- toxic emissions set to rise with a raft of new plants. So, you know, 30, 30 plants, um, you know, within a few miles of this little township that created itself to try to get away from them. And so, okay, they, they got them out of that little, you know, footprint of the town, but surrounding them, all around them. And um, I, I just, I, I, there are certain things in life I just plain cold don't understand, and I don't understand people supporting immoral um, leadership, and I can't understand this commitment um, we have to um, an industry forum that is doing so much damage. So, you know, you, you talk with these candidates all the time. Why isn't this issue um, on their on their um, Oh, well, I, I think it. I think it is on a lot of elected officials and candidates' agendas. And I, I'm, I'm, sa- I'm sorry that I did not have not seen the story up, but I will go look read it now. But I did see Walt Handelsman's uh, editorial cartoon about right. this issue. I put that on my newsletter today too. Yeah, I thought that was absolutely brilliant. We are so fortunate to have somebody of his talent and caliber right. and willing to go out on a limb on many things. And um, so I did see that. I thought that was really good. But, you know, I think um, Joan is, I'm sorry, was it Joan who you were talking to? Uh Um, I think she kind of touched on it that it's not, you know, the industry is is very pervasive in the state and has been, you know, for time immemorial. And there are a lot of jobs attached to it, and there are a lot of mythologies out there and a lot of fears. And, you know, a lot of times the big corporations do engage in a little bit of fear-mongering. So, you know, I think it's a complex issue. I don't think it's any one thing, but um, I definitely think it's something that we're facing in this state. And obviously, you know, what? how much of us are going to be here in the next 50 years? And that is a serious problem that this state in particular, I mean, climate change is an, an issue throughout the country, um, and, you know, California's on fire, and there's all sorts of issues everywhere, but Louisiana is right in the crosshairs of, you know, how much of our state will be left. So I, I hope that people will continue to pay more attention to it as, you know, more 
discussions are had, articles are written, interviews are done, etc. You know, sometimes I feel that one of the key reasons why we don't shift gears when we need to is because we don't understand how to shift those gears and where to shift them to. So I, I don't feel as if the state really explores the question of economic development and 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 how else they can focus their energy in addressing the need for jobs and and growth and um, improving the the livelihood and um, uh, our quality of life in the state. I just don't think they're 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 thinking about it. They're exploring it. There's no Department of Economic Development Research. You know, there's an Economic Development mm-hmm. Department, and I think they pretty much stick to the low-hanging fruit and the easy solutions, um, you know, such as encouraging, you know, tax incentives for the next chemical plant. Um, but what, what, how, how does it happen when a, the shifts, the gears shift and, and people really do change their posture? What, this is what I was trying to get out, out, get to with Silas also earlier in the show is that, you know, what does it take? What does it take? to see things in a different way, or as my husband says, to see the invisible? Well, I think I think it's twofold. I think, one, it takes leadership. You know, the elected officials have to have show leadership, and there also has to be a groundswell of support and some interest coming from the constituents. And so, you know, whether it's top-down or bottom-up or some combination thereof, I think that's when you see change happen, you know, um, most people are reluctant to see change, even if the change ultimately will be beneficial. Uh, we just, as human beings, I think, are resistant to change. And um, it takes a combination of a, a the will of the people to push it and the leadership to say, okay, this is this is a real problem. What are we going to do about it, you know? And you have some leaders are better than others, and some are, you know, as you said earlier, not complicit and some are more complicit um in the industry so so you see not really my area of expertise but i I understand but um it's it's going to be you know before your career in politics is over without a doubt you will be dealing with this because it is getting so much worse but um I, i think that i'm curious to 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 what extent in your polling data in in or your your focus groups or what however you're pulling in information about what people are thinking are you seeing this emerge at all not at all actually and it's interesting because i've been involved in political campaigns for over 20 years i think it's probably somewhere between 25 and 30 years and in every poll i've ever seen in every parish in the state the number one issue is always crime no matter what, um, whether it's Orleans Parish or Jefferson Parish or, or what have you. Um, so that has been consistent throughout my political career. Um, you know, other issues come and go depending upon what's going on. Obviously, we have infrastructure issues in Orleans Parish, drainage, flooding. Um, you have those issues in Jefferson Parish as well, which are the primary areas where I do campaigns. But, um I, you know, coastal erosion and the problems, you know, that are related to pollution and, and to the petrochemical industry um, really are negligible in the polling that I see. And when you ask people, what do you think are the biggest issues facing you, it's usually crime is first, there's economic development, jobs, um, things like that. But it's, it's, you know, like I said, flooding is huge, um, particularly in Orleans Parish uh, and infrastructure and drainage. But that's kind of... 
um, the, the main things that, that come out in the so, polls. Uh, and I don't know if you asked Silas that question, but I think he would corroborate it. I'm sure, but I, I think you recall a conversation that we were having offline where I told you that um, the one subject that I do not discuss on my radio show is crime, and I don't discuss it with people, and I don't write about it, and I don't think about it because, to me, it is so much a symptom of the lack of education, the lack of opportunities, the lack of self-esteem, the lack of the opportunity to fulfill one's potential that leads to crime. And if you don't deal with those issues, you are never going to really make a dent in crime. So, uh, But why is that such a hard message to get across to people and say, you know, it's about the economy. Stupid is an expression we've heard before that goes way back to um, uh, the rage and Cajun, you know, during Clinton days. Um, but we still haven't grasped that. Well, I think, you know, that it is, as you pointed out correctly, it's a very complex problem with many factors that are involved. And, you know, most people are looking for simple solutions to complicated problems. I think that's just, again, you know, sort of a human nature of thing is like, you know, more police or more money or what can we do with it that's easy. And some of these problems are so systemic and they're going to take a generation to fix. And, you know, the average I think, you know, voter is looking for, well, you know, what can you do for me for, by the next election? And, and you have to have, again, leadership, yeah. people who are committed to these systemic issues and are willing to do the hard work that's involved in helping people so that crime is not, you know, something that they are almost forced to turn to because of their circumstances. So... Uh, let's talk for a minute about the um, voting in this election because that is very closely related to this, even though I don't think that the um, petrochemical plants are going to be addressed um, by either uh, administration of either of the candidates that are running right now. Um, but tell me about, um, you know, I talked a lot with Sil- uh, Silas about this um, election and, and um what the what the key factors are, and he talked a lot about motivation. That the motivation of the voters is so crucial, um, and those who feel like it's hopeless, their vote's not going to affect them. Um, and I tried to emphasize the statistic that I heard, and, and, and I think it may have been you who mentioned it. That um, you know, uh, one of the, or maybe it was Jacques. I, I, I always check in with Jacques on these issues too, Jacques Moriano. And one of the good, two, I, good idea, <laughs> really. One of the one of the two of you mentioned that a legislative race um, in this last election was settled by 16 votes. 16 exactly. votes means you, exactly. your and, mama, and your that dad, is your not kids. That's uncommon. I mean, it is amazing how important each individual vote is. And that 16 vote differential um, is, you know, it's not a total anomaly. And so, you know, I think in the governor's race, most people have made up their minds that. I've seen polls where the undecided is like down to 3% or something like that. So, again, it's just a question of turnout at this point because the people that are clearly for John Bell Edwards are there and the people that are clearly for Responi are also there. And so there's not a lot of um, ability to persuade at this point. It's really, it's all turnout. Everything about this election is turnout. And the only way to turn out vote 
as you said, is to motivate people to go out and vote. And I, I learned over the years uh, working with my dad, Jim Carvin, that people tend to vote against more than they tend to vote for. Um, and that's why you see attack commercials work and you see fear-mongering work. And um, I think that's what's going to be at stake on November 16th and during this early voting period. So, you know, we'll, we will see. But I, I was encouraged, actually, to see that uh, early voting turnout, from what I've seen of the, of the few days that we've had of it, um, is up from the primary. So I so, heard that, yeah, I heard that on the first day it was up. And I uh, asked Silas, and he didn't know, but um, uh, uh, what have you heard about the ensuing days? Has it stayed up? Is it still high? And how do we know yes. who's making up those numbers? Because between uh, the Responi voters and the Edwards voters, do we have any clue? Uh, I guess we could. Well, we do, demo- actually, uh, because uh, the numbers come from... The, the numbers come from the Secretary of State's office. Now, we don't know who voted for whom because our votes are private, but we do know by, um, you know, race, and we do know by age, and we do know by geography uh, who voted early. And so it's fairly easy to extrapolate, you know, that certain segments of the community are more likely. You know, we know party affiliation, for example, so... We know that, you know, Democrats are more likely to vote for John Bell Edwards. Republicans are more likely to vote for Responi. So when you see the Democratic vote is overperforming from the primary, that's a good thing for John Bell Edwards. When you see African-American vote is overperforming from the primary, that's a good thing for John Bell Edwards. Obviously, the reverse would be true. So um, we, we are able to extrapolate and analyze the, the early vote numbers and get a sense of momentum and trends and you know, what direction it's going. Okay, well, tell me a little bit about that then. Let's drill down. So t- uh, we have uh, a few more minutes. Um, uh, t- tell me more about uh, what you've seen. Well, I, I have seen the early vote numbers, and I, you know, the African-American vote is up from the primary, so I'm very encouraged by that. I'm a John Bell Edwards supporter. But, um, you know, um, but the Republican vote is up too, and we still have, um, you know, another Let's see, what's today? Tuesday, we still have another um, four days of early voting. And and I think early voting, as a, as a rule of thumb, is usually about 25% of the total vote. So still, 75% of the vote is going to be determined on November 16th. And we have two visits from President Trump taking place this week. Um, so, and next week, I guess. So, um, you know, two vote, how two, much? Two visits to Louisiana? Yes, he's coming oh to God. Monroe, and he's also going to Shreveport between now and the election. I think he's in Monroe this week and Shreveport next week, is my understanding. So, um, you know, how much of a factor that will be in motivating his supporters, which are many in our state, um, to go out and vote for Responi? You know, I don't, I don't know the answer, but um, I know that there's a very concerted and professional effort to to turn out the the Edwards vote and. Um, you know, we'll see. I don't have a crystal ball, so I, I don't know. I do think, from what I've been told, that it's still tight. And so I would encourage anybody who is on the fence about going out to vote to, to tell them that your vote really can make the difference between who the next governor of the state of Louisiana is. So we have about a minute left, and I have two questions for you. The first one is along the lines we've been speaking, and the last one is just a little zinger for the fun of it. But um, so... Um, uh, what about the young people? What's going to get them to come out? 
Well, I mean, it, you know, I, I, it always baffles me that young people don't vote because they have so much at stake. It's their future, really. You know, the older people, the super chronic voters tend to be, you know, 55, 65 and older. And, you know, they're not going to be here as long, you know, so there's not as much at stake for them. So it, it does baffle me. But I think it, it takes... One, it takes a candidate to inspire them. I mean, we did see young people come out for Obama in record numbers um, in a way that we had not seen in many, 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 many years. I'm glad um, you so, mentioned Obama because I'm sorry. I'm going to jump to my last question because we're just about yeah. out of time. So I heard yesterday that there's still pressure on Michelle to run. <laughs> Can that happen? Is there any chance in the world? Gene, anything can happen in politics. I've seen it. But I think it's unlikely, but, um, you know, you never know. Um, I think she'd be a terrific candidate, but, I, you know, I, I, it, it's, look, it's a national election. It's a presidential election. It's really hard to come in at the last minute and put a campaign together. It takes years and years of, you know, groundwork and that sort of thing. Although, you know, if there turns out to be a, um, you know, there's no clear choice for the Democratic Party. You could potentially see something like that happening. But I, I wouldn't put a whole lot of money on it if it were me. Okay. Karen, thank you so much. And I'm sorry I had to back you up on the show. But um, I'm no not, I, as I often say, I'm not Rachel Maddow. I'm not good at pontificating on the air. And so um, I, I'm just somebody who's curious and likes to hear what other people have to say. So, um yeah, that's why we had to move you back. And thank no you problem. so much for really hanging pleasure. in there with us. And uh, look forward to um, hearing more from you. And um, maybe we'll do a little um, uh, quick quick uh, analytics after the race. But um, here's hoping that um, your words and those of Silas's and, and um, my urging will get a few more voters out. Let's hope. <laughs> Thanks, Thank you. Jean. Enjoyed Thank you it. very much. Um, ladies and gentlemen, this is Gene Nathan. It's Crosstown Conversations. And get out and vote. You can vote right now. Early voting is really easy. Go to City Hall. That's the easiest thing to do. And um, uh, from 830 to 6, except Sunday, um, or get out on Election Day. Bring your friends, your family, your kids, your pets, anybody. All right. Thank you. Bye.